Good afternoon and welcome to the Institute for Government. My name is Nick Davies and I am Programme Director here. Thank you very much for joining us for this discussion on how to build cross-party consensus on controversial issues. Uh, successive UK governments have tried to use independent commissions, uh, cross-party talks uh, and public engagement in order to diffuse contentious issues. Uh, and despite having a sizable majority, the Johnson government is no different. Uh, it has promised uh, cross-party talks on adult social care reform with Matt Hancock, the health secretary, writing to MPs last week asking for ideas with more <coughs> formal talks in May. And although they've ruled out a independent commission on social care, the government is committed to a royal commission on criminal justice, with that expected to be launched uh, in the coming months. Uh, and beyond government, uh, in parliament, uh, six parliamentary committees, which are themselves forums for building cross-party consensus, have launched a citizens' assembly on climate change. But how effective are these different types of approaches and what are the key success factors uh, that are there where they succeed? Uh, so to discuss these issues and more, I'm delighted to be joined by this stellar panel. Um, our first speaker will be Sir John Geeve, the former Permanent Secretary uh, at the Home Office, who will reflect on how civil servants and ministers approach policymaking on controversial issues. Our second speaker will be Professor Dawn Oliver, uh, Emeritus Professor of Constitutional Law at UCL, uh, who will discuss her experience as being a member of the Royal Commission on Reform of the House of Lords. Our third speaker will be uh, Professor Sir John Hills, uh, the Richard Titmus Professor of Social Policy at LSE, who will reflect on the successful search for consensus by the Pensions Commission. Uh, and finally, we'll have uh, Dame Julie Meller, the Chair of Demos and the Young Foundation, who will discuss the role of public engagement, particularly citizens' assemblies, in building consensus. After the opening remarks from each of our speakers, I'll ask a few questions uh, before opening up to the audience for a Q&A, uh, so please do think of some questions uh, while our speakers are talking. Uh, I'd also encourage uh, both those here and watching on the live stream uh, to tweet using uh, hashtag IFG policymaking, uh, and we'll also be tweeting uh, from our account at IFG events. Uh, in terms of housekeeping, uh, there is no expected fire alarm today, uh, but if the fire alarm does go out off, uh, please go down the stairs and congregate by the statue of King George VI, which is the very large one on the right uh, as you come out. Uh, and in the event of a first aid incident, uh, we're not expecting anything, and thank you for your social distancing already uh, in the room, uh, but please clear some space uh, to allow the first aiders to deal with the situation. Great. So, without further ado, I shall pass on to John. Right. Um, I've been reflecting since we spoke about this, and uh, the commonplace is it takes at least two parliaments for any new policy to be properly tested and to show impact. Um, and in many cases, it takes a lot longer than that. Um, to get a single policy implemented over that period, you need a lot of luck, you need a long government with a consistent approach, or you need acceptance by the opposition of the policy. And I suppose the question here is how do you secure that? We're going to come to particular ways you can do it. But it seems to me there are three uh, more underlying grounds for continuity. One is if you can create a favorable current of opinion in which MPs swim and political parties form their policies. The second is, can you gain the acquiescence of powerful interest groups? Or alternatively, can you disempower entrenched opponents? And the third is, have you got a policy which seems likely to work? Um, I think you can apply that at the stratospheric level to the two big changes of socio-economic model we've had since the war. We had 45 to 79, the corporate state, in which, in effect, the Conservatives accepted a large chunk of the labor reforms, post-war reforms, with high taxation, a big state, uh, industrial bargaining, and so on, until that broke down. Then 79 to 2016, where we had the social market, 
mixture of uh, international open markets, regulation, and a European-style welfare state, where it was Labour which essentially moved its centre of gravity to accept that. Uh, that obviously broke down with the referendum, and we now have a new model being formed on the hoof. Um, on the one stage down from that big picture, I wanted to th mention three examples of particular policies, one which has lasted, one which hasn't lasted, and one which never had a hope. Um, first, central bank independence. Handing the most important economic policy decisions to a group of technocrats at arm's length from government uh, in 97. That was a tremendous shock when it happened. It was one of the cases where Labour sort of got their acquiescence in first, i.e. they voluntarily occupied a bit of Tory space. And um, the Tories felt they should have done it, but they hadn't quite. Uh, it was very well supported intellectually. There was a whole discipline of monetary economics which showed to their satisfaction that it was right in theory that all decisions should be taken by monetary economists, not politicians. There was no uh, concerted entrenched opponents. And therefore it survived remarkably well, despite the financial crisis and the failures that revealed. The one that failed or hasn't lasted is the sort of new public management, which I was around the time I was at the Home Office in the Treasury. PSAs and targets, the public service agreements, attempts to define and measure how government was doing. Now it only exists in the IFG. Um, <laughs> this was another attempt by Labour to occupy the responsible middle ground. It was well supported intellectually. There, was a, there were whole volumes uh, written about it. Uh, and it was w reasonably well established. And the results were sort of mixed, but some of them were encouraging in the 10 years it ran. But the opposition and hostility of the main professions and the main services, the doctors, the teachers, the police, to <laughs> targets, was never uh, dissolved. And therefore, when it was an open door, if you like, for the Cameron government to offer the abolition of this approach to government to the public sector. And my third example, which never had a hope, is immigration policy, uh, the sort of running sore of British politics, um, with ceaseless initiatives, changes to legislation, changes in system, changes in organization. I think there um, we've seen two failed approaches. The Blair-Brown years, the objective was not to produce a certain amount of immigration. It was to reassure the public and the means to reassure them that the thing was under control was to get a conspicuous grip on particular problems. When I was at the Home Office, it was asylum which had bulged enormously, um, and people coming out through Calais in lorries and trains. And in a way, the, the, the government was pretty effective in, in, in addressing those issues. But there was always another issue. And it made the competence of the Home Office um, and the government the, uh, the, w one of the key parts of the political debate, which was extremely uncomfortable because competence was being judged by impossible standards. Um, when the Cameron government came in, they made a major change to that by actually declaring the objective of the policy, which was to get net immigration down to tens of thousands. And on the back of that, they introduced even more draconian measures. Um, the problem with that was that it was a conspicuous failure and they didn't have a policy um, which, could, which had a hope of meeting their objective. The blame was evenly spread across the EU and the Home Office under, under them. And now we've got a new, a new start, Brexit, so we've closed off the EU special access and the magic point system, so we'll see how that develops. In a world of rapid uh, movement, rapid change, reducing costs of information and travel, it's not clear what is achievable. 
then I suspect we're still promising implicitly more than we can deliver. Thank you, John. Um, I'm not sure we'd see ourselves as keeping the flame for new public management, though we do have a report on the use of targets in public services coming out in a couple of months' time, so keep an eye out for that. Dawn. Yes, well, um, good morning, everybody. Um, just a word about the Royal Commission. I was a member um, of it, of course. We were quite cross-party. We had a bishop of the Church of England. We had the uh, clerk of the House of Lords and so on. And we started work in March 1999, and we reported in January 2000. Our approach was that we should consider what role this reformed second chamber, we weren't going to call it the House of Lords because that wouldn't have helped, um, what role it should or roles it should perform. We thought briefly that having decided that it should be a voice for um, quite a, a wide range of people in, uh, who, who can't normally get elected to Parliament, that it should have a constitutional role, and that did happen, the Constitution <coughs> Committee, and so on. And then we thought, well, now, if that's what you want it to do, what sort of person do you want to have there? And we thought, well, really, elected people are not going to do the things that we thought the Second Chamber should do. And part of our remit was that we should make sure that the reformed chamber should not undermine the primacy of the House of Commons. And that, of course, is another problem when you're talking about election. You know, a fully elected chamber aren't going to say to themselves, well, we better mind our P's and Q's about the House of Commons. They're going to be what <laughs> politicians are. And they're a whole. So we um, proposed that there should be a, a mainly appointed House, but it would be appointed. There would be politicians there, but it would be appointed according to criteria about what sort of expertise and what sort of voices were needed in the House. Um, and then we were divided, but we did propose various small numbers of elected members. And when we published our report in January 2000, the press immediately slammed the whole thing. They didn't bother to read the report. They were not happy at all with the idea that this was not going to be a fully elected chamber. And then the MP started thinking about this. And it was, and as you know, Parliament in due course had a vote on, I think, five options for the reform second chamber. And I can't remember exactly, but should it be 20% elected, 40% elected, 60% elected, 80%, something like that. There was not a majority for any of those options. And the fact of the matter was that MPs could absolutely see that an elected or part, you know, substantially elected second chamber would not be good for them and could not be relied on not to oppose them. Our terms of reference were that the second chamber, the reformed second chamber, should complement the House of Commons in holding the government to account, absolutely not challenge the House of Commons. But that's not how it looked like to MPs. If you've got a whole lot of other elected people in your parliament, on your patch, you really can't rely on them not to challenge you. So I suppose my, um, my conclusion is there are some things on which it is impossible to get consensus. Um, and our, our project was one of those. Thank you. Thank you. OK, so pensions. I think it's worth starting by reminding ourselves why, why what the Pensions Commission came up with was controversial, um, looking at three elements of it. The first element was that because of increasing life expectancy, it made sense for the state pension age to rise. The state pension age had been the same since, um, since 1940. Um, and you only have to look across the channel to see quite how controversial increasing pension ages can be, even if the product of not raising them is an ever-increasing ever proportion of working life, of, of adult life um, in retirement, which is expensive. Um, it was also controversial to recommend that, that everybody should, by default, but with a, an option of, of opting out, um, be enrolled in some kind of workplace pension if they were employed. Um, and that was controversial in the sense that it implies people making extra, condition, extra um, contributions and firms making contributions. But also it was a threat to the industry, um, or at least it, it, depending on how it had been done, it was, it was a threat to, to the industry, um, the pensions industry. Um, 
there were some, some features which, which got around part of that. Uh, but, but establishing um, a rival to the existing um, insurance companies and pension funds through what's now the National Employment Savings Trust, NEST, I mean, it was something, you know, introducing a new competitor, a low-cost competitor into a market isn't always easy. And then interestingly, thirdly, one of the most controversial things internally within government was the recommendation that the basic state pension and the state second pension on top of it, it's now being consolidated, should return to rising with earnings. Um, it had been linked to prices since the uh, beginning of the Thatcher government in 1979-80. Um, and it was controversial because um, for the Chancellor at the time, Gordon Brown, one of the great symbols of new labor, of not being the people behind the manifesto um, in 1983, was that they were no longer promising as they had a return to earnings indexation and a restoration of the relative value of the basic state pension as it was. So it's a very difficult decision um, for Gordon Brown because it was seen so much as being one of the things he had fought through. Um, so that's why it was controversial. Um, what helped us get um, a cons consensus? Well, we were completely independent. Um, so we were producing some bad news. Those three things were the result of what we described as um, the unpalatable choices that the aging and the, the lack of um, adequate provision under the system that had emerged. Um, but that message came more easily from an independent group, I think, than it would have done had it just been a, a green paper or, or a white paper. Um, obviously, in achieving that independence, it was crucial that Adair Turner was such a fantastic figure um, and such a, a phenomenal, laser-sharp analyst of, of the problems, as well as being very persuasive, but also prepared to stand his ground. I mean, our our reports, although we discussed what we were, we certainly discussed the, the evidence with the three um, departments, num number 10, Treasury and um, DWP, as, as we went through, our actual discussions about how, what the report was going to say were with us, within ourselves and our team. Um, and the, our reports hit government itself at the moment that they were at the printers. Uh, so they were not sent for rewording re or negotiating with, with the Treasury. Um, and there was a reaction to our interim report, um, which came out in 2014, um, and it became known that, um, that, that Gordon Brown was very unhappy with it. That actually strangely played in our favor because it established the independence and the credibility of the group um, more widely. Um, of course, you know, the point of having an independent commission is that you can say what you think the price of that is that you can be put on the shelf, and there are many other examples of Tomlinson on um, A-level reform, for instance, might be an example of that, that was kind of rejected on the steps of number 10 on, on day one, effectively, wasn't it? Um, secondly, it, there was overwhelming evidence. I mean, it was clear that things were not working out the way that people assumed that they were. David Willits, amongst others, had pointed out that we had been overestimating the amount of, of pension contributions being made. We were over-optimistic about um, what, what the future pension outlook looked like. And we had very high quality evidence. Um, I mean, that partly goes back to um, uh, the, the um, approach taken by, um, by Adair, which um, meant meetings with 200 slides, every one of which was meaty, um, and, and you only got to see a fraction of them in what in the end were, were reports this thick. Um, in terms of the evidence we collected. We had a very high quality team behind us and I think we were incredibly lucky with, with two things. One is that we had a very good group of people working with us, mainly on secondment from DWP, but, but also that um, the, the Chinese walls between the team and the rest of the DWP was respected um, by the DWP side um, as, as much as by ours. Um, it may, we can talk about this, it may have helped that there were only three of us. Um, I mean, people have talked about that, that model, that none of the three of us could hide in the corner. It wasn't like being you're there representing industry and somebody else. You know, there, were, there were just three of us in the room, and we had to sign up to um, every word. Um, and we were uh, very, incredibly lucky that um, the other two members were so good. Um, how did we get the 
the, the consensus, well, I mean, through very well-established techniques, um, we had serious consultations. They were, they were not consultations just for window dressing. They, they were serious. We, um, we, we had written evidence, which was, we were taken seriously by um, all of the stakeholders of different kinds, um, and we had a lot of meetings with them. Um, and it took time. So there was a whole year before our interim report came out, and I think that helped establish um, the, the, the scale of the problem we were showing. Um, um, and, it, and that two-stage process really helped because getting established that this really was a problem, I think, was important. Um, um, and we did, you know, we, we also talked to the opposition front benches, um, uh, not so much about um, detailed recommendations, but about the problem and about the directions and the things that were ruled out, the things that weren't going to, to work. Um, and then after our report came out, there was some testing done. There were some citizens' juries done. Um, there was a National Pensions Day. Um, I don't know whether it was on the same day as the Six Nations or whether we had to avoid the days of the Six <laughs> Nations, but, but you know, Southampton, Birmingham, all over the place. Um, uh, there was some road testing of was this balance um, acceptable. And it was the balance, I think, what played in our favour was that we were able to have a balance of good and bad news as far as the public were concerned, that you know, the slogan, a better pension at a later age, meant there was a quid pro quo, and that's maybe rather different from the, the deal on offer in France at the moment, which is just a, a pension at a later age, uh, people who have been used to having something better. Um, I, thought, I think also maybe within government just the timing of how slow the effects of this kind of reform is. Um, we pointed to the unsustainability of a system that was saving public resources by ending up with the overwhelming majority of, of the working population ending up facing means testing in old age and therefore with very limited incentives to um, really put money aside for, for, um, for, for pensions. And that's why having a, a more secure pension um, with, a, with, a, with a base that people could build on was a good idea. But that, that's expensive. I mean, in the short term, it meant that the, the savings, the reduction in spending as a share of GDP that was built into the forecasts didn't materialise. And then pension spending, as things are at the moment, will be um, one, maybe, one, maybe more, more percent of GDP higher in the future. But it's in the future. I mean, it's not just a bill being picked up by the next government the opposition would think they would be. It's a bit more distant than that. Um, you can get irresponsible decisions made for the same reason. Um, but finally, I think we have to kind of say, well, you know, has that consensus lasted? Um, so I think at the time we were successful in building that consensus. But you can see that having been eroded, I think, rather decisively by um, George Osborne when he brought in the acceleration of the um, state pension age um, without the kind of notice period, without the kind of consultation we'd recommended, simply as an austerity measure and designing that in a way which created the WASPy women and a lot of opposition to that. Now, obviously, that's gone through with over the government, but I think that's damaged the idea, the, the consensus that you know, as we age, assuming we do, um, the pension ages have to rise. And you saw that in the last election campaign. I mean, the position on the WASPy women themselves um, by all the opposition parties, but the Labour Party's sudden commitment to spend £58 billion pounds, um, um, on Sunday after the question time um, on reversing all of the pension changes. And it built into the manifesto was there will be no more pension increases. So that bit of the consensus went. And I think also the consensus of, of, of the structure um, was damaged by the announcement of pension freedom and the decumulation phase without any default um, structure having been worked out as to having how what people should do with all this tax-privileged money that they've built up. So, yes, for a while, but it's not obvious to me that, that we've still got the consensus we had. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, I'd like to just thank the Pensions Commission first, because having two kids in their 20s, it is so wonderful to see that they are already saving, and it's a natural, automatic part of how they see their employment, etc. So, thank you. Um, good afternoon. Uh, I wanted to, I, I speak with some trepidation because I'm more of a passionate advocate than a deep expert and there will be people in the room who know more about deliberative democracy than me and certainly watching online. 
but I believe that there is a coming together of a yearning for a more civil politics. The signs of um, a healthier, less divisive debate on some of the big knotty uh, issues that we face and a need um, to rebuild trust and legitimacy will require meaningful public uh, involvement. And I think that's why um, deliberative democracy has become fashionable. Um, and, I th and I think it deserves consideration. But I would caution from the start that there are certain things it is excellent for, and there are other things it's not. So it's definitely not a panacea. I wanted to just say something briefly about the case for its use some surprising outcomes from uh, some of the demonstration projects that have been happening and how I think if you think it could be useful, we can try and quickly make it happen more. <clears throat> so in terms of the case for use, I see it as part of refreshing our democracy by enabling our representative politicians to be brave. Because I think what you get is the outcome of deliberation by the public. You know, if you give them the difficult task, like the Climate Assembly, the Parliament's Commission that's happening at the moment, their task is not do you believe in climate change or how bad is it, but actually we have committed, our government has committed in law to get to net zero by 2050. How do we get there? So they have to make recommendations on the difficult decisions that government will have to make. And so I think that means the outcomes, the outputs from those um, deliberations actually do enable our representative politicians um, to be brave uh, uh, and gives them the principles for design of sustainable solutions. I would caution any government that has a large majority um, to uh, not think that the majority gives them the mandate to tackle some of these complex knotty issues requiring long-term support and cross-party support. Because as we all know, a big majority can get things done in the first 18 months, but these complex and difficult solutions take longer to implement. And actually, a majority is not necessarily sufficient for the public legitimacy on some of these knotty problems. So what does the public actually think? Well, um, as chair of Demos, I'm very proud of some work that we did uh, in the last autumn and published um, during the election campaign, which was about what the public think about division and civil debate. And what came out is some things you would expect. So Brexit and immigration are divisive, are seen as toxic, but there is less hostility in people's <coughs> debates in their communities um, than suggested by the more divisive voices amplified by the public debate. And what they also said that I think is key is that they said there is more healthy debate uh, and they considered it important to find resolution and therefore to compromise on the big issues like funding of the NHS and social care uh, and public health, funding of uh, tackling climate change. And that's mirrored by Britain Thinks research, which shows, I can't remember the exact figure, but it was more than 70% of the public want to be brought together. Um, and they're looking for leadership that will do that. Um, so where deliberation fits in that is it enables those conversations that the public are saying um, there are signs of that healthier debate. It enables conversations which cover the full spectrum of values and motivations on any particular issue. And hearing that from one's fellow citizens and understanding and having empathy for a different perspective and therefore considering that in how to come to a compromise. Um, and in fact, one of the kind of academic definitions of um, deliberation is that it's what the majority of the public would think if they had access to the information and time to deliberate with their fellow citizens and make recommendations and uh, come to conclusions. But it is only uh, one part. I'm not saying this is the solution, and I think a lot of the things that others ha have done um, are absolutely relevant. Um, I think there are four areas, and in fact this is on the Involve website, they've started producing some fantastic uh, resources uh, for anyone who's interested, um, and they, they have articulated four um, areas where it would be appropriate to use deliberation, and they're overlapping, but in summary they are policies or decision, um, where decision makers lack the range of expertise or viewpoints to enable them to make a, a robust decision. Um, where the decision or policy involves complex issues, uncertainty or conflicting beliefs and values, or where one viewpoint might otherwise dominate. 
where the decision will require trade-offs between differing policy options and participants working together can explore in detail the implications of the alternatives to result in a better and informed decision. And where the decision maker cannot make and implement a decision, there needs to be buy-in. Um, and I think that's part of public legitimacy at the moment, needing that you know, the public want to, to be, have meaningful involvement. Um, so that's the kind of case for use. In terms of some surprising solutions, um, there, I'm, there are probably people in the room who are involved in the Brexit Assembly that was an academic demonstration project uh, done by the um, Constitution uh, Unit in, I think it was 2018. And I found that absolutely fascinating. I was a, a table facilitator. And what came out of that is no one changed their mind from leave to remain or remain to leave. And in terms of their preferred deals, there was a distance between those who'd voted to leave and those who'd voted to remain. But if you said to them, you can't have your preferred deal, what's your compromise? There was remarkable consensus across that big divide. And the principles behind it were so evident in the room that could have guided how we went forward. So the principles were, we've all worked so hard for peace in Ireland, please let's have a customs union. They were, we believe in a fair economy, and now we've seen how people uh, in different parts of the country are going to be impacted by um, tariff and non-tariff barriers to trade, and therefore, while we might not go for a full single market, we're interested in something along those lines. And actually, we want to be able to ask people who can't fund themselves, either through capital or income, when they've been in the UK for a while, to be able to return to their home EU country. And therefore, if we had ID cards and registered people when they came in, we're comfortable with something like freedom of movement. Now, that is a long way from the political debate that we've had um, and shows how the public are willing to compromise. I think the other one is the one that Parliament commissioned on social care. Um, and uh, the, the surprising thing for the technocrats in this one was the public saying very clearly, we do not want our home as one of the assets that's considered in terms of what we have to put into the private element of funding of social care. And I think that has to be listened to because it was very clear. They, they still came to solutions. You know, they said, let's fund it through social insurance for the over 40s or earmarked or other income tax, but not VAT, not council tax, not inheritance and don't use our homes for the private contribution. They talked about a high floor and a low cap for the personal contribution. But in the round, they said, don't use that. So, so I think those are examples of the value of that public deliberation to find compromises that actually neither politicians nor technocrats might come up with. So the, things, the three things briefly that I think uh, could help move us forward, one is involve is establishing, and I will be chairing, a coalition for deliberative democracy, which is basically saying we want to make it easier for politicians to say yes to deliberation, to enable them to be brave in making the difficult decisions, and therefore we are going to galvanize the support for um, those, uh, those methods in business, in media, in trade unions, in consumer groups, in civil society. Um, and that support, yeah, I'll, I'll stop there on that. The second is the system change. The RSA and Involve came up with three things that they felt would help us make this normal. The first is just as we've got regulations on consultation, to include in those regulations a requirement to deliberate if it's the appropriate mechanism. Uh, ensuring quality, and again, that's something Involve is going to be doing more of, looking at um, building capacity and quality to deliver um, deliberation at scale. Um, and some high-profile symbolic projects. We've seen it on uh, social care and happening on climate change. <coughs> going back to a, the thir a second chamber, I think a, a wonderful high-profile project would be a third chamber for a period of time of the public, a large-scale citizens' commission or assembly that actually said, where do we want to go as a country? What's the evidence of where we're at? Therefore, what are the priorities we want to tackle? And commissioning assemblies that tackle those. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, I'm just a quick question for each of you. Um, so on your point about kind of deliberation is where the public would get to if they had the time and kind of the experts in front of them. So how, if you have convinced a group of people who may have spent several weekends together to compromise, how do you translate that into wider public acceptance for people who don't have that time to deliberate? So uh, one of the examples of um, large-scale use of deliberative polling, which I wouldn't necessarily use an example, but it illustrates the point I want to make, is in China. 
because in China, the centralized government wants to understand how the public think on different issues in order to help them frame the argument for what they want to do. If you don't add that last bit of just using it in a kind of Machiavellian, manipulative way, I think once you've had a citizens' assembly on a major topic, um, the, the politicians will understand how the public think and therefore can make the case for the kind of solutions that the citizens have come up with, knowing that they should resonate because they speak to the values and motivations that the public have expressed. John, you mentioned the kind of the, the pensions day and the other engagement that you did. To what extent do you think that that public engagement helped you sell some of the kind of potentially unpalatable solutions that you've come up with? I think it helped government see that there was a sellable proposition there. So, you know, the, I am a great enthusiastic for um, citizens' assemblies and things like that. But, you know, you have to realise that there is a particular set of information that's being put in front of people. And what was being put in front of people was the evidence on the problem that we had gathered and the dimensions of a solution within the four unpalatable choices of paying higher taxes, paying greater contributions, retiring later, um, or having a poorer old age, and that we had a particular mix, and the, the, um, the, 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 the deliberative assemblies suggested that the, the kind of mix we came up with was a good balance between those four, rather rejecting um, the fourth. Um, <clears throat> so I think it, it, it was one of these things that did help um, government be braver, but it also then I think exactly had had the benefit of allowing them to frame the, the way what was going to happen um, and the, the quotes common sense nature of it, um, and then um, and then go on. I, I was um, really worried after the 2010 change of government that one of the um, one of the initial, one of the first policies of the incoming government was that there was going to be no government advertising. Now, this, the introduction of automatic enrolment involved a major sales job. Um, in the end, all those kind of multicolored monsters of one kind or another, I can't remember, um, that popped up um, in adverts. But, but to start with, there was going to be none of that stuff. Um, so um, <clears throat> there was still a lot of persuasion afterwards. And then I think. John mentioned luck. I mean, I think it was incredible luck in some of the timing of this. I mean, the stepping up of the minimum contributions um, in the wake of, you know, we didn't foresee the 2007, 2008 crisis. The idea that you'll be taking a chunk out of people's net income um, in the aftermath of that, I think was something that a lot of people looking ahead, if they'd known it, would have said, you can't come off it, you can't do that. But there was some particular bits of luck in the timing, including last April, when there was a further step up, that it coincided with increases in the income tax allowance, coincided with a, a period when earnings were running ahead of prices. It was just, but you know, that was fluke. So I, I agree with John very much that sometimes this is just a matter of luck. John, I want to ask you about the kind of the, the membership and leadership of the, the Royal Commission. So yeah. um, John mentioned the, the Pension Commission, there's only three of them, but small but arguably perfectly formed with representatives from kind of industry, <laughs> uh, academia and the trade right. union movement and mm -hmm. a, a excellent leadership in Adair Turner. Mm -hmm. To what extent were the kind of the range of experiences and personalities that you had in your group, what impact did that have on the discussions you had and how you were able to sell your proposals? Right. Well, I don't think we were able to sell them, to be quite honest, but I mean, we did have um, experienced politicians from the three, well, Labour Conservative, and I was actually the Liberal Democrat member, but I had no, no relationship with the Liberal Democrats. But we had Baroness Dean, for example, we had Lord Herb, Heard, we had, um, I won't go through all of them, uh, we had Anthony King, Tony King, fantastic political uh, sort of commentator. Our chairman was Lord Wakeham. We had Gerald Kaufman, we had the Bishop of Oxford, and we had somebody Welsh and somebody Scottish. We were, we were <coughs> quite broad. Um, and, and we had Michael Wheeler-Booth, who had been the, the Clerk of the House of Lords, so, because there's a lot of technical stuff in this. So we had a good spread, I think, of people who knew, knew about it and from different 
points of view. And we did do quite a lot of consultation. We held something like 15 or 20 public um, you know, consultation meetings in various parts of the country. We, our chairman certainly spoke to uh, someone in the Scottish government. Anyway, there was a certain amount of, if you like, confidential sort of finding your way. Um, but that was it, really. Yes. I don't think, to be quite honest, it would have made much difference. I mean, the, I think I said this, but the problem is that this, more than, for example, pensions, this issue deeply affects government and it deeply affects MPs individually and as parties. And um, I don't think, I mean, one of the things I thought is that you can't outsource the learning process that people, MPs and government, have to go through when they're dealing with a very, very tricky, difficult, extremely tricky political issue. You can't expect MPs to be to say, well, we had a really expert, lovely group of people, and what, two of them belong to our party and everything, and so of course we're going to accept what they say. It's not like that. They have to go through their own learning experience, and, and um, we could give them some evidence, but no. And finally, John, it was notable, I thought, that of your three success factors, the last one was the policy is likely to actually work. Uh, and I wonder the extent to which you think that these disagreements are about the, the technical issues or whether they're about the kind of the self-interest of the people who have to implement them or whether they're about a clash of values, potentially, and, and what impact that has on how you try to address these problems. Well, it's about all of those things and in different proportions. So um, um, uh, keeping the credibility of the, of the policy stance up in the public and among the legislators is, 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 is key. Um, um, what's, yes, I, 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 um, I suppose I should have some other examples of bad entrenched policies, things that have lasted a long time and which um, we've been unable to um, get beyond the sort of uh, stasis. Social care is the most obvious of those where there have been numerous studies, numerous cogent proposals put forward, um, but somehow the political system has been unable to move. A local government taxation, John was reminding me of, is another absolute disaster area, um, which uh, everyone can see is totally unsatisfactory, mm -hmm. and yet we've had successive parties and successive governments uh, failing to tackle. Arguably, the simplest, like, you know, not putting up fuel tax um, year after year after year, um, is un understandable in terms of a very vociferous and well-organized uh, interest group which opposes you. Um, now, I don't know whether your value, clash of values quite, where that fits in. I think each one's slightly separate. Um, I don't think there's a particular value around uh, local government taxation. It's not a clash of values. It's not that there isn't a technical solution. Um, I suspect it's rather more like the House of Lords. It's, uh, it's, there's an entrenched jealousy from the central government towards the local government, which gets in the way of sensible conclusions. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to open it up to questions from the audience. Um, can you please say your name, where you're from, uh, and please ensure that they are, in fact, questions uh, and not long statements. Uh, great. Thank you. Uh, so, question there. We'll take those two together, and then lady in that red. Marion Sharples from the Women's Budget Group. Sorry, Just, can you say that again? It was a bit Sorry, Marion Sharples from the Women's Budget Group. Um, on social care, what I'd be interested to know the panel's reflections on the best ways to move forward. On that. Thank you. Uh, just behind. Uh, yes, uh, Robert Morland, I'm a former MEP and uh, local councillor, and I just w wonder if part of the problem is is actually in our structure of politics that opposition thinks it all must always must. Uh, oppose, and I'm thinking of the referendum. If you think of the stand that a year ago, compared to what the situation they find themselves in, they made uh, an enormous, I think, mistake in actually aligning sometimes with the ERG against government, um, against uh, Theresa May, and they've now ended up 
with, dare I say, it's a situation that is probably nothing like what they wanted at all. Thank you. And then, yeah, one final question at the back there. Thank you. Uh, Margaret Aldred, former civil servant and waspy woman, um, which I won't go into. Um, my question for the panel is that the presentations focus very much on policymaking in the past. And I would be very interested in the observations about how the polarization of um, political debate and media commentary on political debate will help or hinder addressing both the identification of policy objectives and the means for their delivery of the sort of issues that they have been discussing. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so uh, three uh, fantastic questions there on kind of prospects for social care reform, on the opposition's natural instincts to oppose and the difficulties that might cause and to kind of the impact of polarisation. Um, we'll start with you. Um, well, on social care, I thought the recommendations from Dilmot were very sensible and something along those lines would be a good result, but I don't know if that's what's going to happen. Um, we have to put more money in. Um, um, and at the moment, we seem locked in a world where we're privileging health, but still not properly funding social care, which is, a, um, which is problematic. On the... Um, opposition and the, the sort of way our system works. I mean, obviously, that's very important in, 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 in how policies get decided. I think one factor there is that politicians make their reputation and ministers make their reputation, the reputation that really matters, i.e. their reputation among their peers, in Parliament. So it is very important as a junior minister to shine. And the way you shine is by launching initiatives and dealing with crises. Well, so the dealing with crises, you know, that's, uh, that <coughs> just comes at you. But the launching of initiatives is also very important. So we have an overload of initiatives all the time. And I think that that um, factor is one reason why we have the endless stirring of the pot on many of the po uh, political issues. I'll leave someone else to answer, Margaret. <laughs> Um, well, I don't know that I have anything very um, wise or sensible to say about this. I mean, it seems to me that politics in England, in Britain, is the way politics is. Uh, it's partly perhaps to do with the electoral system, but I don't see that changing. Um, there is polarisation. There's polarisation amongst the press as well. Some very partisan newspapers, and we've got freedom of the press. That's life. I can't myself see us uh, moving away from this. Um, well, I don't think I'm, I have, I'm in a position to say very much about political structures, but um, on social care, I thought what Julie said was extremely interesting. I mean, it seemed to me for a long time that um, the Germans and the Japanese have established social insurance systems um, that are funding long-term care, um, and that exactly the solution of realizing that the people with the biggest stake in this are older people that we have an extraordinary tax system which reduces the tax burden for me on May the 9th. I think I just got a letter telling me um, when my national insurance contributions stop. Um, but with a bit of a run at it, you know, the, the, the big source of, of untaxed um, potential at the moment are the assets of the better half of, um, of the baby boomer generation, um, which are tax sheltered in various ways and the alternative for raising taxes from them is to increase taxes on today's earners. Um, uh, seems to me to be an irrational and unfair way of running things. So I think there is, interestingly, what you said, that, that there's a solution there that other countries have done um, where, you can, where you can show people that there's something in it for them. But I, I suspect you, you probably have to go further than that and make it as part of a bigger intergenerational bargain that you can think of, I mean, there are many, many big problems we're facing just at this moment, but, um, but two, I think, big concerns are how will we be cared for in old age and how will we make sure that our children and grandchildren are housed? And if somehow there's a sort of, I mean, this is a you know, political um, um, manifesto, 
kind of balance as to what's in it for different generations. How can you set this up in a way that there's, yes, there are sacrifices for, for different groups, but there are also gains for those different groups. How do you package these things together that can create that gain, simultaneous gain and loss for individuals rather than just the being gainers and being losers? Um, on the social care one, I mean, certainly when I was the Ombudsman for Public Services, which included the NHS, we saw the crisis in social care through people being discharged when unsafely, when nothing was set up in the community to look after them, or delayed in discharge, in which case their fitness declined daily um, because things weren't available. So I, I, I do feel the lack of action is actually a, a political crime. It's a perfect example of a difficult decision that just keeps being kicked. And I think a good place to start is that um, the, the findings of that Citizens' Assembly, because it was commissioned by two select committees that by their nature are cross-party, and using that to understand why the public concluded as they did. And in fact, I didn't mention the detail, but, but the National Insurance Beyond State Pension Age was something they said, you know, that, that had, you didn't have to pay it. They felt that should be reversed. Um, so I, I do think that's a good place to start, and it was the reality of people feeling whether their home would have been at risk or not, that their home is their castle, is their personal space, and it just did not want it played with. So I think looking at, at um, that and using that as a starting point for cross-party discussions would, would be good. Um, on the kind of structure and, and opposition, then I, I think it will take time, but, but I think both as a nation and uh, in the political class, if we ignore that yearning for bringing together in civil debate uh, among the public, um, it, it, it will have negative consequences for the, the people's perceptions of, of uh, the way politics operate. I am encouraged by initiatives like More United, which is this group of, I think it's more than 60 MPs across parties who are saying they will consciously look at finding cross-party solutions for different uh, issues, and I think that's a, you know, a, a little spark, a little germ of something. Um, and, and I also think part of the problem, as has kind of come out in other people's comments, is that where power to make decisions lies has become skewed towards the centre. And actually, one of the interesting things, for example, um, in the climate change assembly that's taking place at the moment is people grappling with issues like, well, we really like the kind of integrated local transport system they have in Zurich. But we don't think our local authorities have the powers to make that happen. So should we be looking at devolution of powers? And once you take it to the local level and people are involved in discussions at a community level, I think some of the, the, the quality of the debate uh, can improve. Um, I think that's all I said. Um, it's interesting you mentioned More United because um, social care is one of the campaigns yes. that they are taking forward. Um, on social care, I'd just add, we've done a reasonable amount of work on this, and I think the fundamental problem is the public simply don't understand the social care system. They understand how hospitals, how GPs work, but they largely assume that they will get a free at the point of access care. Indeed, where there have been system assemblies, people are appalled uh, when they find out what the, how ungenerous the actual system is. I should also say we wrote an excellent report uh, in summer 2018 that set out these problems and also uh, how you would approach uh, a solution which included case studies of Japan and Germany and indeed some of the other commissions we've spoken about. Okay. Can I, can I, just, oh. I think someone should reply to Margaret's question of has it all changed now? You know, now we're in to a new era of populist politics. What's, what price cross-party cooperation? And um, uh, we don't know, of course, because um, unlike the sort of Thatcher revolution, not a huge amount of systematic uh, sort of body of doctrine has been set out for the new government. But I mean, certainly to begin with, I don't see them worrying too much about cooperating with the other parties who are are largely uh, irrelevant at the moment. But um, I do think that d there is room for Julie's sort of uh, deliberative assemblies, citizen juries and so on. These parties spend a hell of a lot of effort and time on polling uh, sort of groups, talking to groups, seeing what words and so on and so forth at the time of the election. And it's certainly, if you're going to be a populist government, it, it's worth spending a lot of time thinking what's going to be popular and what is going to chime. So I, I can actually see a government which is, is more focused on will this sell, 
spending more time with um, deliberative juries and so on. Uh, well, yes, just, uh, just a point going through my mind, really. This, it depends very much upon the culture uh, at any given time in political parties and in Parliament and so on. But one thing we haven't said the word, you know, it might not be a nice word at the moment, is leadership. And I think, you know, you do need to have the right sort of leader. I mean, how you get the right sort of leader, I don't know. But there has to be leadership. Um, because it would takes courage to take the initiative and say, right, oh, we've had the citizens' juries, etc., etc., etc. I know it's difficult, but we've got to do this. And that takes leadership. But how you get it is another thing. Right, I think we've got time to squeeze in just a couple more questions. So I'm going to take... And I'll take these two extremely briefly, as long as they're all very quick. Um, John Armitt, I'm the chairman of the National Infrastructure Commission. Um, we've heard a lot about commissions today, and I suppose my simple question is, actually, is the way to work our way through these controversial issues through commissions? Uh, we've now got two um, in the OBR and the Committee for Climate Change, which are statutory commissions, We've been going for five years and no sign of being wound up at the moment. Um, and the majority of what we've recommended has been agreed on a cross-party basis. And in support of deliberative democracy, I mean, it's part of our process. And it's absolutely fascinating. I'm going to have to close um, so you down there so we've got time. So part of that overall process. But I would say commissions as a, a permanent feature of our democracy might be an answer. Thank you, and then very briefly here. My name is Patrick Wall. I've, uh, I have a, a background in business. Uh, I've also spent 30 years as a school governor, uh, and I'm a concerned citizen. Uh, I commissioned research last year. Sorry, I can I ask for a question? We're running out of okay, time. To look at um, the change in education policy, and my question is, how, is there, could we bring education into the cross-party consensus given 102 ministers in 40 years, given five times as many statutory instru instruments as most other departments, and given the visceral disagreement amongst um, educationalists in this area. Thank you. And Hi, um, I'm Ravina. I'm from Green Alliance. Um, and I just, I, firstly, I want to say I'm a huge supporter of deliberative democracy, and we've done deliberative democracy on climate change ourselves. But I was just wondering if you think there's an issue with an issue like climate change where we need kind of ambition on climate change from the government like we've never seen before. Is there an issue between kind of putting the responsibility on the public to indicate what, what is supported and the government needing to take action that may not necessarily be the public's favorite options, but the point that we're at is we're so time pressured and urgent that they kind of need to be really quite ambitious. Thank you. I guess we'll start with you and then very quick Respond to the closing remarks. Yes. So, uh, in answer to John's question, I would say it's a both and. So, the, the Committee on Climate Change are the people um, who are the lead experts for the Climate Assembly. And actually, the public who are taking part feel so privileged to have access to those experts. And I would be very surprised, all the recommendations are down the track, but I would be very surprised if there wasn't a major one about public information, transparency, so that people can understand the impact on their lives when they're asked to change things, and therefore it has acceptance. Um, uh, I agree education is, a, is an area that could well be ripe for how do you make education policy something that is long-term. Um, I chair a, a trade body on skills, and the constant changing is a nightmare in terms of delivering the skills we need in the country, so stability would be good. On the Green Alliance, I would say, I just want to make sure that we're clear that if something's deliberative democracy as opposed to a, de a deliberative event, it has to be commissioned by politicians who can make decisions. So we need to kind of be clear about that, that uh, so that the recommendations don't go nowhere, don't go, uh, yes, anywhere. Uh, and then um, I, I'm not sure I agree with the premise of your question about the, the getting to, because of the example of the Climate Change Assembly that is happening at the moment is they have to come up with recommendations that will get us to net zero. So that will include things that government does, things that are expected of the public. So it looks at it in the round. Um, and yeah, so I think it, it should cover the challenge that you're giving. Thank you. John. Um, well, in, in response to John, I, mean, I, I think we can have more commissions. I, 
they're immensely enjoyable and interesting and do allow you to look at issues, that, the areas that are very difficult for, for politics. But you can't outsource all your political decision making. And, you know, you know if, you, if you end up with a structure that is all run like the NPC and the OBR and Pensions Commission, then you know, if we were actually laying down pension structures, you, you have to have, this has to be advisory to the, to the, to the democratic process. Um, so, you know, we at one point thought we'd had enough of experts. I'm glad to see that maybe experts matter just in the current moment. Um, and I, I think we could, we could have, have more reliance on experts, but in the end, we're a democracy. Thank you. Cool. Now I pass on. Sure. Yeah, on the green side, obviously, what you're trying to do is to change the water in which politicians swim so they feel they have to respond. I think you're doing a fantastic job, and I expect uh, you know, another uh, summer of Extinction Rebellion will, will, will move the dial on, and you will get responses, but whether they're adequate to the cast, who knows. On education, it's a mixed bag. We've, got a, we, we've actually had quite a consensus around secondary education and the GCSEs and, and so on. Um, quite a narrow approach to learning in those spheres. Uh, so you might want to see that shifted. On the skills side, the non-university skills side, that's another area where going right back to the late 70s, no one's been able to establish as a, a, a lasting policy, and yet it should be one where, you know, it should be possible to do that on a cross-party basis. I don't know why that one hasn't worked. Brilliant, thank you. Um, just quickly on uh, commissions, we're supportive of them, but where they exist, the form needs to follow the function. And for example, in the case of the National Infrastructure Commission, I think that means it should be set up on a statutory basis as a non-departmental public body. Uh, with that, I'm going to bring this to a close. Uh, thank you very much, all of you who've attended, for braving uh, London uh, in the current uh, situation. Uh, and I hope you will all join me in thanking our panellists for today. Thank you.